0: Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. I don't know how much you guys uh, tend to listen to podcasts in your free time, uh, there's one that's pretty popular that's going around right now, called "The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill." I'm sure you've heard about it. listen to it. Uh, hopefully you're all caught up to date on that. Um, it's old news, so there's going to be some spoilers in here, but the main person who the podcast focuses on is a pastor named Mark Driscoll. And this is one story that exemplifies many stories that are like it, which is that there's some pastor gifted with the ability to preach and to teach and to really be a charismatic person, who leads a prolific ministry. And at some point down the line, it is found out that there was a corrupt character flaw all the time, but that was kind of overshadowed and overcome by prolific ministry success. And scripture, when it outlines for us the qualifications of what we should expect from someone who's to lead us and to shepherd us and to guide us spiritually, we are told that the qualifications are primarily character qualifications that they are to be a one-woman man, that they are to be respectable among the community, and so on. All of those traits having nothing to do with the ability to teach, so much as the character and the holiness of the person who leads the ministry. And our Lord goes before us as well, exemplifying that He doesn't require things of the people who are to shepherd His flock that He Himself is not going to do. And so when Christ Jesus comes to this earth before He begins healing anybody, before he has prolific ministry success, before he goes throughout all the Middle East and that Jordanian region and causes a huge stir with the Pharisees and with the Roman government, before he does any of that, he first tests himself. And he tests himself at the qualities of personal holiness and righteousness and obedience to God the Father. And this is key because if this is not true, if he's not holy, if he's not obedient, if he's not righteous, then it really doesn't matter how good of a preacher he is. It really doesn't matter how many miracles he can do. What matters is this and this only. And if this foundation is here, his ministry is a success. But if it's not, it can fail. This was true in the Old Testament of those prophets, but none exemplify it like Jesus does here in the wilderness during these temptations now as we go through this text of scripture, we're going to work through and we're going to see the devil attempting to uh, tempt Jesus and cause him to sin, cause him to become disobedient to the Father. And there's a lot of motifs that you can draw out of this section. There's so many ways, there's so many things going on in here that we just frankly don't have time for. But what I would like you to focus on and look at is how Jesus Christ is the true and the better Adam. He's the one who comes as the second Adam to redeem humanity. Christ is the true and better Adam, and that, that is exemplified in these temptations. And Luke proves this to us by first giving us a setting and then showing us the different ways in which Satan tries to tempt our Lord, and then ultimately showing us in the ways in which Christ conquers each one of these temptations in turn. So if you look with me at chapter 4 and verse 1, I'm going to read again. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. These first two verses of the chapter set up for us the setting of the text. They tell us what is happening chronologically since the last time we heard about Jesus. Now, if you were here last week, we worked through the whole genealogy that concludes chapter 3. And the genealogy, although it is important, it is not chronologically necessary for it to go here. Luke does that stylistically, but the last event to have occurred wasn't the genealogy and it's not even John's arrest which we read about two weeks before that. It is the baptism of Jesus which happens there in verse 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3. So Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, the Lord has anointed him, he says this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and then the next thing that happens and Jesus now full of the Holy Spirit which is upon him is led by the Spirit spirit into the wilderness So the first thing that happens after he has been declared to be the Son of God is the Spirit leads him into a place where the devil can take his best shot at testing that claim. Testing, is this really the one who's going to be able to deliver the Israelite people? Is he really going to be the one who is going to be the Savior of the world? And that is the setting in which we find ourselves. And Jesus is very much like the prophets of old. He's like Moses and he's like Elijah in that he goes into the wilderness and for 40 days, he fasts, like Elijah does, like Moses does up on the mountaintop. And that 40-day time frame is significant because it puts Jesus in that next significant portion of history. The Moses was the law, Elijah was the chief of the prophets, and now Jesus comes to fulfill the law, to fulfill the prophets, everything that was put in them. So he fasts for 40 days. And when he is concluded with his fast, we see that he is, it says there at the end of verse 2, that he was hungry. Now, I'm going to go to that part of it first because there's a question that often comes up in this text of scripture, which is how real were the temptations of Jesus? How much of his humanity is being put to the test, and how much of this is him just with supercharged deity working his way through the devil without really any threat to being tempted? And we get here that he is both fully God, truly God, and truly man. And if he was God, Fasting for 40 days is no problem because God doesn't need to eat food. He doesn't need sustenance. But what we're told here in the text in verse 2 is that after 40 days of eating nothing, he is hungry. So what Luke is setting up for us is not only a setting in the wilderness, but he's also setting up for us the fact that this is Jesus' humanity that is going to be put to the test. His humanity is weak. His humanity is frail. This is the the pinnacle time before death is going to occur. At the end of 40 days is about how long a human can go without food before they'll die. And so Jesus is at the brink of human finitude. He is feeling the closest thing to death that he will feel between now and the time when he is delivered up on the cross. And at this moment in time is when we get these accounts of the devil going in to test him. And this sets up a contrast for us between the Lord, and Adam. Because Adam and the Lord both face temptations from the devil. Adam is the representative head of all humanity. He is the first of God's good creation. He has the image of God breathed in on him, and he is put to the test in a garden, in a lush, beautiful garden with everything that he could ever need, with all of the food that he could ever want, with a helper suitable for him, with all of the animals and all of the creatures at his disposal. And Christ Jesus also faces temptation from the devil. But the setting of Jesus' temptation is very different. He is not in a garden. Luke tells us that he is in the wilderness. And this is a wilderness region where if you were to go and you were to visit, no life grows here. This is a very dry, very harsh environment. This is the same kind of desert region that John the Baptist did his ministry in. So Jesus is not in a lush garden where there's abundant food all around. He is in a place where he is going to be put to the test not only by his situation but also by the devil. Jesus is alone. He has no helper by his side. So he is tested in two fronts. And also he has not eaten. And also, not only is he alone, but he has done so for 40 days. He's been in silence and away from humanity for 40 days. And Adam, facing none of those same circumstances, gets tempted and, if you remember how that story goes, it doesn't work out for humanity. And there's another difference in the setting before we get into the temptations, which is that Adam is tempted before the fall. So he doesn't have to deal with some of the consequences of fallen humanity. He doesn't have to deal with sickness and with hunger and with a broken human body. But Jesus has to deal with all of that. He has to deal with bad weather, a bad environment, a body that gets hungry, a body that breaks down, sores that could come out on his feet from walking around in the desert in the blistering sun, sunburn. He has to deal with all of these terrible conditions for 40 days. And yet, despite the fact that he is at such a disadvantage compared to Adam, Luke is going to show us that it didn't matter about the circumstance. But he sets up these parallel differences between Christ and Adam. And so we're told that this happens. We're told he's led into the wilderness. And this is a key thing to point out here. He's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. And now this would hopefully kick up a question for you, which is, well, Jesus says he doesn't, that God tempts no man. We get that in the writings of Paul, that, or the writings of James. He says, Let no one say that they are tempted, that they are being tempted by God, but each one is tempted by his own desires. But here, Christ Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit in order to be tested, in order to be tempted. And so then there's a question, which is why does the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into such a difficult place at the very start of his ministry? Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. I'll just read it for you. Hebrews chapter two, we're told why. It says, therefore he, being Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to be able to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ Jesus is led into the wilderness because this is the plan of God starting in motion. Christ Jesus gets the Holy Spirit, and the first thing that happens is he needs to triumph where Adam failed. He needs to be put to the test like all of the people before him were put to the test. And not only does that need to happen, but he needs to overcome this temptation. So the Spirit, following the plan of God, Jesus, submitting to the will of God, goes into the desert, into temptation, and that is where we find the setting. And there's one last thing to point out here in the setting up of the text which is that in verse 2, we are introduced to a definite person, the devil. And this is a key to point out, and I've pointed out in Luke before when we've been there, is that Luke has no problem with the supernatural. And you, as a believer, shouldn't either, because scripture clearly speaks about angels and demons and principalities and spiritual forces that we are at war with. And so here, when we're introduced first to the devil, this is the first time in Luke's gospel we bump into him, and Luke... And all the writers of scripture treat the devil or the accuser or Satan like he is a real person, like he's a real being who's in the world. And that's important to note because there's some modern theology and there's some modern thinking about Christianity, which is that the devil is really just, you know, the embodiment of the evil that's in your own heart. And so when we get the temptations of Jesus that this is Jesus, musing with his own desire. And when he squares off against the devil, he really, it's like him versus bad him or him versus evil him squaring off in the desert. And that somehow when you are tempted by your own desires, that's you being tempted by the embodiment of the evil within you or the devil. But this is a false religious belief. We're we're led to believe that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. We're led to believe that the devil is the one who incited David to evil to count the census. We're led to believe that the devil in Job chapters 1 and 2 is the leader of the rebellion against Jesus in the host of heaven. He is the one who speaks out against God. And so the devil is a real person. Scripture treats him as a real person. And it is not an intellectually bad thing for you to believe in the supernatural. Because Luke, the greatest historian of this time period, treats him like a real person. And if you're going to take Luke's history as being honest, which all historians will, You have to take all of what he says as being honest. You can't take your slice of intellectual knowledge and start cutting out the parts that make you uncomfortable. And so we're introduced to Jesus in the wilderness, let out. There's a setup. And now we're introduced to the devil who is going to seek to tempt Jesus. And you'll know that there are three temptations classically given in these texts. Luke's order is different than Matthew's order, but that's because Luke will approach them stylistically, and we'll take a look at that. But you can write down each of the three temptations. Satan tempts Jesus in three different lanes, and the lanes are as follows. He first tempts Jesus to doubt God's provision. He tempts him to doubt God's provision. Secondly, he tempts Christ to devise a better plan. To devise a better plan. And then thirdly, he tempts Christ to deny the Father's protection to deny the Father's protection. And so as we look at each of these temptations in turn, we'll see how each of these different lanes of temptation challenge the attributes, the character, and the nature of God in different ways. And so the first one, which we'll start in verse 3, is a temptation to doubt the provision that God has made or to doubt God's provision. Verse 3 says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now it's worth noting that this temptation, there's a lot to be made of this, but that word if at the beginning of the sentence is where I really want to focus on. Now you might have read in some commentaries, or you might have studied this on your own, and that statement if might read in English like it's a question or a challenge to Jesus's divinity. But, although it is a conditional statement, Satan and the demons never challenges Jesus, challenge Jesus's divinity. All the, all the demons always acknowledge that this is the Son of God. And Satan, too, here is acknowledging that Christ is the Son of God. So this statement, if, in English, might be better translated, since you are the Son of God. It's a conditional statement, and on the basis of him being the Son of God, he's about to tempt him in a lane, but the temptation isn't a challenge to Jesus' divinity. So the temptation, then, what is it? Well, it's in that second part of the statement. It's, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. You see, as Satan was unsure about him being the son of God, he wouldn't have followed up with that next line, command this stone to turn to bread, because a normal person would not be able to do that. Only a divine person could do such a miracle. And so he, he tempts him or he challenges him to turn this stone into bread. And here we have that parallel temptation to what Adam, our first father, faced as well in Eden. Remember, Satan comes to Eve and he says, eat of this tree... Because its fruit is good, and it will make you wise and all-knowing. You will know good from evil, and you will be like God. And Adam and Eve look at that fruit, the temptation to eat, and they partake, and in doing so, all humanity falls. And here, the devil, with the same line of tricks, uses the same kind of questioning to Jesus. He says, turn this stone into bread, Jesus. You're hungry. It's been a long time since you've had food. Since you're the son of God, shouldn't you get better treatment from your Lord? Shouldn't he be looking after you in a better way? Shouldn't he be taking better care of you? If you really are his anointed, where is his favor now that you are in the wilderness? Go ahead. God would want you to be happy. Turn this stone into bread and eat. Because God would certainly want his son to be well cared for and well-fed. And it's the same line of reasoning that Satan uses to Adam and to Eve when he tempts them in the garden. And he says, you know, the Lord really, he just doesn't want you to be quite like him. He's actually not as good as you have him out to be. And if you trust in his providence, if you trust in his plan for you, you're going to realize it's not in your best interest. So take matters into your own hands. And here he tempts the son of God with the same thing. Jesus is tempted to eat in the same way that Adam was. And surely, surely, this would be fitting, right? Jesus is hungry. He has the power to turn this bread or this stone into bread. And so the question is, would it be wrong or immoral for Jesus to go ahead and use his miraculous abilities in this way? And it would be, but not because it's morally wrong for him to use his powers, in fact, if he used his powers, turned the stone into bread, and brought glory to himself, that would be a fitting end, because that is what Christ was created for, to be glorified. But the question is, is he going to do so, is he going to gain his glory by being obedient to the Father, or is he going to do so by taking matters into his own hands? And the challenge to Jesus' early ministry is the same challenge that Jesus faces in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is he going to go through with the plan of God as it has been outlined, or Is he going to doubt the providence of God? Is he going to doubt the ability of God to sustain him and instead take matters, even a good end, and take that into his own hand, doubting God's ability to provide? And Israel, in the wilderness, when they're wandering around, they face the same kind of thing. They see God's miraculous delivery of them from Egypt, and at the first time that they're thirsty, in Exodus 17, They begin to cry out to Moses saying that it was better when we were in Israel. We'd rather be, or it's better when we were in Egypt. We'd rather go back there. At least they fed us and they clothed us and they gave us water to drink. And Moses cries out to God and says, what a people you have given me. And the Lord says, strike that stone and water will rush from it to feed the people, to give them satisfaction. And yet, Jesus, when faced with a similar type of physical ailment, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's ready to gain access to uh, sustenance. Faced with that same temptation, Jesus does not doubt God's providence. Instead, Jesus succeeds where Israel and Adam before him failed, and he says in verse 4, Jesus answers him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now that is a quotation out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and the full quotation goes, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, or by all the words that come from the mouth of God. Which means, I'm not only going to listen to the word that says, you know, I can do these miraculous things in the will of my Father, but I'm also going to listen to the words that say, the Son is submissive to the Father. Trusting in the Father's providence. Trusting in God's protection of his people. Trusting in God's protection of his anointed. I listen to all of the words that my father says, not just words taken and chosen out of context. And he submits to the will of God. And in doing so, he refutes the devil for the first time. Man shall not live by bread alone. And then in verse 5, we get the second of the three temptations. This is the temptation for Jesus to devise a better plan than the one God has. Verse 5 says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, Jesus is in the wilderness, a physical place, And then something supernatural happens between these two supernatural beings, and the devil takes him up, we're not told where, the devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And we're left to conclude, like, what does that mean? You know, how does that all shake itself out? And there's a few parameters scripture gives us. One is we're we're certainly told that he was taken somewhere, whether he was raptured up into the high heavens, which Satan and Christ could certainly do. Whether he was taken up to a high mountain and showed the reign of the Roman Empire at that time, all of those are possibilities. But what we are told definitively is that Satan shows Christ all these kingdoms and says, These kingdoms are under my authority. I can give this authority to whoever I want to, and I can give it to you if you will bow down and worship me. Now, there's a trick here with this temptation, which is the same as the first temptation which is it's a a doubt of God. But in this case, it's not doubting God's provision that he's going to make for his son. It's a doubt on the plan that God has for Christ to obtain all the kingdoms of the world. Because to obtain the kingdoms of the world is a very fitting thing for Jesus to get. Jesus Christ is Lord and King and Savior over all the world. He gets the title Christ, which means the anointed one, the son of David, the one who is going to rule and reign at the right hand of the Father forever. He's the one who we just read about in Isaiah 6, who is sits on the throne room of the kingdom. He sits on the throne and he rules and reigns over all creation. He comes down from his throne to take on the form of a man. And now we find him here being tempted to once again take up his throne. But the temptation is not to take up the throne. The temptation is to go and take up the throne without going through the plan that God has put before him to obtain that throne. See, God's plan involves him getting all the kingdoms of the world. But God's plan involves him first going on a cross to die. And after dying on a cross, after going into the grave, after being resurrected from that grave, then ascending to the right hand of the Father where he will rule and reign forever. So the temptation isn't to take all the kingdoms. The temptation is to do so apart from the cross, which is the same heresy that we even face today in the church, which is to get all the glory, all the goodness of God the Father apart from the cross part. Jesus, you can get all the authority, you can get all the glory, that's fine, Satan's okay with all of that, so long as the cross piece doesn't happen. He's actually willing to shortchange all that other stuff to bypass the cross part and give all this authority over to Christ. Because Satan knows, if that were to hypothetically occur, that he would have delivered a victory, or he would have gained victory over God. But instead, he does not. Because Christ Jesus, just like the first temptation, resists this temptation. But there is a question here, which is: Is all the authority of the kingdoms of the world is that even Satan's to offer? Is that even his authority to give out to who he might give it to? And you might think of Ephesians, Ephesians two two, where it says he is the prince of the power of the air. You might think of verses such as John twelve thirty one, which I'm going to turn to. John twelve thirty one. Where we are told, sorry, I'm in 2131, 1231. Jesus answers, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So Satan is, in this section, referred to as the ruler of the world by Jesus. Jesus acknowledges that he is the ruler of the world. So Paul says he is the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. Here Christ acknowledges him as the ruler of the world. But you've got to juxtapose that with other texts of Scripture, the whole council of Scripture, which tells us other things about the devil. For example, in Job chapter 1, we're told that Satan has to go to God and ask for permission before he can do damage to Job. In Job chapter 2, Satan has to go back to God and ask for permission a second time before he can even advance his assault of the righteous one. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we are told that the dragon and all of his army are going to be thrown into the sea. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so you've got to juxtapose what Satan claims as his title of authority, with what the rest of Scripture testifies is really who has the authority. I think the best verse that comes to mind for this is Psalm 24, verse 1, which is, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So the earth is the Lord's. And while Satan has dominion for a time and for a season over this present darkness, he does not have undisputed claim to that authority. In fact, he's on a very tight leash from God, which is growing tighter and tighter by the day. And in God's divine plan, he allows Satan to have access to this authority, but really it is and it isn't Satan's authority to give in one sense and another. So whether Satan is in this moment self deceived or whether he's just flat-out lying, we're left up to interpretation. But Christ certainly isn't fooled one way or the other. And he answers him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This comes after Satan offers him these things and says, worship me and it will be yours. You don't have to go to the cross. You just have to bow down to me, worship me, serve me, and I will give it to you. And Christ says, he's not going to take up issue with Satan's circumvention of the cross. He's going to say, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's another quotation out of Deuteronomy, this time out of Deuteronomy chapter six. You shall worship the Lord your God And notice, service and worship in this section are connected. Christ in Deuteronomy quotes and says, the thing that you serve is the thing that you worship, or the thing that you worship is the thing that you will naturally serve. And so Christ is saying, this is not a one-time worshiping or bowing down to Satan. This would be a continual kind of service to him. This is the same thing that Romans chapter 6 tells us, that all those who uh, sin are slaves to sin. All those who are righteous are slaves to righteousness, but you are a slave to the thing that you obey. Meaning as much as you think you have authority and control and autonomy over yourself, there's no such thing. You're either a slave to the powers of disobedience or you're a slave to God. Those are your two options. And Jesus acknowledges this, he recognizes it, and he says, but it's written in scripture, the only one I'm allowed to serve is God, so that's where my worship goes. My worship goes to him, and so I'm not going to Circumvent God's plan. I'm not going to come up with a better solution to this cross problem. Instead, I'm going to remain obedient and go through with the plan. And remember that God's perfect plan required the cross, it requires the atonement for sin. There is no other way for salvation to happen. And as much as we can think that we don't like that part of the plan or we doubt that part of the plan, Or we question whether a good God would really send his own son to be crucified on a cross at the hands of people, and that somehow his wrath was poured out on that son, and that somehow that atones for all the rest of the world, and that that must have happened for the rest of humanity to be saved. We are told in scripture that that's exactly God's perfect plan. As Ephesians tell us, before the foundation of the world, God came up with this. He wasn't surprised by it, and this was actually in his goodness and in his providence the best way for this to unfold. The question is, why is that the case? Why is God limited in that sense to going only through with a crucifixion or a death of a sacrificial lamb in his place? Well, according to his goodness, he's not only good, he's not only loving, but we were told in Isaiah 6 that he is holy, holy, holy. Which means to be in the presence of God requires holiness. And holiness doesn't mean sanctification or that you're particularly clean. Holiness means separated or totally other. And so God is so totally other from the rest of us that he can't even be in the presence of sin. And so in order for his good plan to allow us to be in his presence, he needed to send himself as a substitute for sinners. And Jesus knows that Satan would do anything to circumnavigate this part of the plan. And so as Satan tries to get rid of the cross and give him all the authority apart from that, Christ Jesus says, I'm going to remain submissive to my Father's will, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in doing so, Christ shows his obedience. And he goes first and takes up his cross. And afterwards, he'll say to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. That is the requirement for the believer. So Christ goes as the firstborn, but we are also called to pick up our cross daily and follow after him. So in doing so, Christ refutes then the second temptation of the devil. And then we get the third and the final temptation, which is in verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here Satan is going with his third temptation, and just as Christ Jesus now refuted him twice by quoting Scripture, Satan's going to try his hand in that game as well, and he's going to quote Scripture to Christ and challenge him on the basis of Scripture, go ahead and test and see if God is going to be faithful to his word. And he quotes out of Psalm 91, verses uh, 11 and 12. And you'll notice in between that quotation, Satan breaks off and then goes back into verse 12. But if he's quoting two consecutive verses, you have to ask, why does he break and come back? And the reason is because he skips a hugely important part of verse 11. He quotes verse 11, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And then he stops. And then he goes to verse 12, just a few words later, and he says, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the question is, what does Satan skip when he's quoting these verses? Satan omits or leaves out the part where he says, he will will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The question is, why would he leave that out? And in leaving that out, why does that make this a false quotation of Scripture as opposed to an accurate application of it? Well, that phrase, in all your ways, has to do with Jesus Christ and him following all the ways of the Father. So he says that God says he will command his angels concerning the Son to guard the Son in all of the Son's ways. And the Son has stated multiple times in the gospel that he does the will of the Father which means the father guards the son as the son walks in the father's will. And Satan here, by taking these two quotations out of context, he is trying to tempt Jesus to step outside of the father's will and in doing so step outside of his providence and then throw himself off the ledge. And what Satan is doing is tempting Jesus to create an artificial problem to see if the Lord will act in some miraculous way. And rather than being a demonstration of faith, that would actually be a demonstration of doubt because it would say, I don't trust what's written here. I'm going to put it to the test right now. And that's not a demonstration of faith and trust and waiting on God. That's a demonstration of, I'm not so sure about this God thing. Let me put him to the test. Just as Gideon shows kind of a lack of faith when he is told by God to take on the invading armies, and he says, well, how about, you know, you make the fleece wet and everything else dry, and then the next morning make the fleece dry and everything else wet. He puts God to the test time and time again because he has doubts, because he's not sure, And Christ, being sure of the Father, trusting in him perfectly, does not throw himself from the ledge, but instead he says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is how Jesus quotes and refutes the third temptation of the devil. And as Satan is tempting him here, again he's tempting him in this way to deny God's protection of the Son. Deny God's protection of the obedient one. And what he's saying, in effect, is if you really want to see if God's protecting you and looking out for you, you should throw yourself into unreasonable circumstances and see if he's going to come through for you on your behalf. You know, God protects all those who obey him, as Psalm 95 tells us. But many of us, uh, we're looking at this, and you might think, you know, that's kind of crazy to jump off of a ledge and pray for God's protection. But there are many of us who do very similar things when it comes to sin and when it comes to temptation. We'll say things like, Lord, I pray that you would, you know, bless uh, this relationship that I'm in right now. Even though, you know, it's sinful and we're sleeping together and it's outside of your will, I pray that you would bless and produce fruit in this relationship. And in doing so, we create an artificial boundary where God is going against his own will to protect that and to guard that. Or we'll say things like, Lord, I pray that you would keep me You know, keep me in this career that's leading me away from my family, away from diving into scripture, away from becoming obedient to you. In fact, it's making me more and more addicted to money, addicted to success, addicted to the approval of man. But Lord, keep me in that career. Or we'll say things like, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer. And we'll say, lead us not into temptation. While at the same time in our lives, pursuing every avenue of access to temptation that we could possibly find. And while it is true that the Lord guards those who pray for him to not lead them into temptation, it is also true that you can do so with your mouth and not do so with your actions. That you could simultaneously say, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but still access all the means of temptation in your life and see that as no problem because the Lord's going to keep you and protect you and guard you. And in doing so, you're creating an artificial set of circumstances in which the Lord would have to miraculously intervene to save you from that temptation. So if you know you're being tempted, if you know that the Lord is not going to bless that thing, don't pray outside of God's will for it. Because Christ Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't put him to the test outside of what he's already said he's going to do. God will protect, God will keep, God will provide. But don't go artificially out of your way to create a false set of circumstances. And here, Christ endures all three temptations. And in in enduring, he proves what was tested originally, which is that he is, in fact, the righteous one. He is, in fact, the one who's going to come and who's going to be the better Adam because he faces all three temptations and instead comes out on the other side totally unscathed. In fact, the devil has to depart from him until another opportune time. Satan realizes this is not working and he's got to go away. And we're told as soon as Satan leaves him and stops bothering him, that in Matthew's account we're told that then the angels come and they minister to him and they feed him bread exactly as the temptation to doubt God's providence was. And we know that God will protect Jesus several times and sometimes Jesus is in the middle of a hostile crowd and he just kind of slips through because God is protecting him and watching him and overshadowing him. But something you need to know about these set of temptations is this this is not a close fight between Jesus and the devil. This is not a close fight. I think it's a pretty common thing in movies or books or TV shows. For the protagonist, when they square off against like, the big villain at the end of the show or at the very tail end of the movie, when the protagonist is going to emerge successful, there needs to be this really close moment where you think that they're not going to make it. You know, in, in Rocky, he gets a punch, he goes down, and you're like, I don't really think he's going to get up from that one. Or sometimes if you're going to uh, follow the Marvel movies they actually cut the movie off at the end of this big loss that the team sustains right before they're going to release another movie showing how they actually circumvent that really close loss and they come out victorious on the other side. And we think that this makes for a really close or a really good set of narratives but there is always something lingering in the back of my mind which is but what if they didn't get up from that punch? Or what if they didn't actually beat their opponent in this moment? Or what if they did beat him in this moment but the opponent comes back stronger the next time and they're not actually strong enough to thwart him this time? What you need to know is although Christ was hungry, although he was alone in the wilderness, although he was at the very brink of human death, he was not close to defeat. Because the Lord has said that he was going to protect the son in all his ways. And as long as the son stays in the path of obedience, he is safe in every single circumstance. Yes, even safe in death on the cross. Because as he's dying, as he's being slain, as he's being killed, and the thieves are crying out, deliver yourself from that cross, get down, call the angels of heaven down to come rescue you. Christ Jesus knows the safest place for him to be is to die, to go into the grave, and to be resurrected by the Father. And that is the safest place for him to go. Because in doing so, he is guaranteed protection. Because the word of God is unfailing. And although circumstance and time and uh, trials might give us doubt about that, We need to know that on the basis of Jesus' endurance, on the basis of his righteousness and faithfulness, we need to also look at that as our example of faithfulness. Now, I need to be careful when I talk about this because Christ is not only our example in this. He, He wins a battle we could never win. None of us probably have ever put ourselves in this circumstance. And if we did, we would fall to the first temptation because Satan is deceptive, he is cunning, he has your playbook, and he knows exactly how to make you fall. But Christ is different. Christ beats Satan in every single way. In fact, Christ does so in a way where he, we can say that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Meaning the devil has no leverage on him to tempt him into sin as he does with you and he does with me because we have original sin within us. So although he has no leverage on Jesus, he tempts him, he tries his hand, but Christ prevails in every single way. And the temptations that you and I are put under are also different from the temptation that Jesus is put under, because like the example of Job, like the example of 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, or I'm sorry, 10, yeah, 10.13, Jesus, or God prevents Satan from tempting us to the full extent of what we could be tempted. In fact, it says that we are not going to be tempted beyond what we are able to endure, but with the temptation, God will provide a means of escape, which means He puts parameters on what Satan can do because he knows our limitations. But Christ faces the full onslaught of Satan's temptation. He faces the best of the best of the best that the enemy has to offer, unmitigated or unguarded by the Father because he needs to beat Satan at that game so that God can put parameters on Satan in every other lane. And so our temptations are fundamentally different than what Jesus faces, but he is our example in this one way. And uh, to bring this to mind, I want you to think of uh, the time when David slays Goliath. You know, David comes in on behalf of the people of Israel, slays the giant that none of them were able to face. They're all cowering in the corner. And then what happens after that is the whole army of Israel gets encouraged by this victory, and they come and they destroy the Philistines as far as Gath. And so here we we are given a picture of what it looks like for Christ to defeat Satan, to defeat death, to defeat the enemy, and then for us... To walk in that same victory forward with him because if we're like the Israelites who David has to go in on their behalf and defeat the giant we can't claim the victory over the giant like what David did but we can take up our swords after we see that victory go through and follow faithfully with the leader of the army to go and continue to conquer and to continue to reign and that's what we're called to do as believers we're called to take up the victory that Christ has already earned for us and walk faithfully in that obedience in that righteousness If you want another picture of this in Zechariah chapter 3 we get this picture. I'll turn there with me and we're going to close here in Zechariah 3. This is a picture of what this victory brings. So if you're unfamiliar with the minor prophet Zechariah I hope you will learn to love and study this passage because it's been very nurturing for me this week. I'll wait for you to turn there. It's pretty close to the end of the Old Testament, guys. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3. And then he, being God, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, by the way, is Jesus. And Satan, the guy we just met, standing at his right hand to accuse him. So you have a defendant, and you have Christ defending us, And you have Satan standing on the right hand to accuse Joshua, the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this a brand plucked from the fire? He's referring there to Joshua. He's saying Joshua is rescued from the fire, meaning he's been pulled out of the clutches of evil. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among all those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now this prophecy and this vision that is being experienced is showing us a pretty interesting picture, showing the accuser and Christ debating over Joshua the high priest. And the problem is the accuser doesn't have unfounded claims against the high priest. He's probably saying things like he's wearing dirty garments in the presence of holy God He's got to be out of your presence. You know that. And the Lord doesn't defend Joshua wearing those dirty garments, but what he does say is take off the garments. I have clean ones for you already. And he puts on these clean garments, and now Joshua is fit. Now the accuser goes away from the picture, and the picture gets played out even further, and God says, this picture that I've just shown is a picture of the one day when I'm going to send my servant, the branch, in Revelation referred to as the root of Jesse. Jesse. And this righteous branch is going to go forth and in one single day this branch will accomplish the removal of sin from all of the land. In one day. And it's on that day when Jesus goes through and does all these things and Jesus the branch goes to die on a tree with the wrath of God poured out on him and in doing so the payment is accomplished and the clean rags that you see Joshua putting on are purchased and they're given to Joshua, and Joshua doesn't have to do anything for them. He puts them on, but he's not done anything to earn or obtain these rags. And we're not particularly told where the dirty clothes go, but Scripture later tells us that him who knew no sin is the one who became sin, so that you and I might become the firstfruits of God. And that is the picture that we're told here. So Jesus accomplishing the defeat of Satan, is the first time he beats him. He continues to beat him his whole ministry. And ultimately, this is necessary because one day Jesus is going to face the kind of temptation that's going to tell him to get off the cross, not go through with his whole wrath thing, and just, you know, conquer and reign as a king. But instead, he chooses the path that God set before him. He chooses obedience. He chooses servitude. He chooses death on the cross in the perfect plan of God because in doing so, he purchases clean robes for you and I to put on before the Father. And we can take off all our dirtiness, all of our brokenness, all of our uncleanness, all of the stuff we walked in here with today that we've been carrying throughout the week, all the sin and the shame that we're going to go commit in the future. And he takes all of that, we take it off before him. And he says, put on the clean clothes that I've already given for you. I've already purchased them for you. Just put them on. And this is the promise that we have secured for us in Christ. And in doing, uh, in, in going through with the temptations and defeating Satan, he starts that process of victory. He starts with the clean rags and He gives those to us. That is the offer of the cross. Will you pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Your plan is better than any plan we could have come up with. As much as it is offensive to us and hard to hear that we are wicked sinners against You, Lord, we know that You are a good and gracious and loving Father, and as much as we try to outsin your grace, we know that there's no way we could. You've gone before. You've sustained. You have kept. You've given us your Holy Spirit to keep us in your ways, Lord. And we pray that that would all stir us to worship, Lord. The fitting response to all of this is worship. Lord, I pray that for the next few moments that you would allow us to get outside of ourselves and outside of our own sinfulness and outside of our own problems, Lord, to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ so that we can loose our lips to worship you, to bring praises to your name as is fitting, as we will one day do in heaven, and as we hope to do for all of eternity, that we could bring praise to your holy name now through song. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.